I'm Teller Emmer. The following sermon audio is from The Well, a ministry of the University Church of Christ in Malibu, California. Thanks for listening. Yeah, feel free to grab a seat. Welcome back to The Well. Um, it's, yeah, it's wonderful to, to be back with you. I feel like it's been a long time um, because with Halloween last weekend and uh, a music-only night in the chapel the weekend before that, it feels like it's been a long time since this has happened. Uh, and, and this means a lot to me. So I've been super excited um, to be back in this space like this. Um, since it's been a while, I want to run through just kind of a brief recap of where we've been this semester. Um, if this is your first time joining us, uh, lucky you, you get to get the whole crash course without um, needing to be here for the previous chunk of the semester. But the theme that we've been working through is get real. And we've been talking about how, how we get real in, in three different ways, getting real with ourselves, getting real with others, and getting real with God. We've talked about how they, they interplay and how they connect to each other and how they lead into each other. You can't get real with others without getting real with yourself and confronting what's within you first. But the main kind of crux, the, the main tool we're using as we look at getting real is tools or stories from Jesus' life. And we're looking at episodes of interactions that Jesus has with broken people. And we've seen all sorts of good stuff, and we've seen how people have been changed. We started off the semester, if you remember, with a, a kind of contrasting scene between a prostitute and a lawyer who, who were at different levels of willingness to accept their own brokenness. Then after that, we talked about a bleeding woman and a dead girl who Jesus stepped into this impurity to heal. And, and he did something that his culture absolutely condemned. And then after that, we saw this awesome story of a paralyzed guy with like the coolest friends in the world who lowered him down to get healed at the feet of Jesus. And then we moved to, to this kind of strange scene with a strange woman at the well who kind of confesses something to Jesus. And he takes it a step further and gets all the way real with her. And then we saw this short little crook who recognized a need for forgiveness in his life and a need to make the things he'd done wrong right. And then finally, a couple weeks ago, we talked about a rich young ruler, someone we can all relate to on some level, who walked away from Jesus sad because he got real with the fact that his deity, his God, was his stuff and not Jesus himself. So we've been seeing healings and repentances and hearts change and people realizing that this Jesus guy is doing different stuff. He's talking about something new. He's building a new kind of kingdom. He, he's building this kind of upside-down morality structure, upside-down value system where, where meekness and humility and, and, and boundaries are eliminated. And it's totally opposite to the might makes right, if you're powerful enough to do it, do it kind of culture that he was in. And so this, this following is growing and this movement is happening and people are talking about it and getting excited and buying into this upside-down morality system, this upside-down kingdom, and it's gaining momentum and then Jesus dies. And if you're not familiar with the story of Jesus, I hate to spoil the end, but I'm going to. It doesn't end like that, right? It's a sad story until it's not, until he comes back and, and, and is raised back to life. 
But in that window between when Jesus died and when, when he interacted with his disciples again, that's where our story opens up. It opens up actually after he's been resurrected, but before the disciples know that. And it opens up in this room where the disciples are together and they're mourning Jesus. And, and Jesus shows up and the mourning turns into celebration. And it totally turns things around. Except one of the disciples wasn't there. One of, one of the guys missed out. And so the rest of the disciples, the ones who got to, to um, encounter Jesus, had to convince him that this had happened, right? And, and, and they tried to tell him, we've seen Jesus, he's back. This is something to get excited about. And he doesn't believe. And as I was thinking about what that might look like, what, what would it be like to convince a close friend of something that impossible, I was reminded of... Um, a lie I told when I was at Pepperdine, when I was a student studying abroad in China. Do we have any Shanghai people here? Yeah, all right. The few um, and the mighty. I love it. Um, so as part of the enriching the cultural experience over there uh, class, we took this tour. We went down to this part of town called Lu Jiazui, and, and that's a super like futuristic um, awesome part of town with all these skyscrapers and, and cool architecture and flying sidewalks, and it's, it's awesome. Um, it's also the home of the Pearl Tower, and, and that's a picture of it, and the Pearl Tower is the one in the middle. And I know that you've all seen it because it's on the wall outside the IP office as you walk to the CAF, but that's the Pearl Tower, and we were right at the base of it during this class field trip. And standing at the bottom of this thing and looking up, is magnificent. You feel so small. It's 1,500 feet high until 2007. It was the tallest building in China, which is saying something. Um, it was originally built in 1994 as a TV antenna. That's also a major iconic part of the Shanghai skyline. It's 120,000 tons, which is about 17, a little more than 17 Eiffel Towers. So, so this thing's big, it's huge. And it's awesome. It looks sweet too. So as I'm standing at the bottom of it, it's got it's all lit up, cool and stuff. I'm standing there looking up and I'm like, man, this thing looks like a spaceship. And then I thought, I wonder if I can convince Brian that this thing is a spaceship. Brian was a friend of mine. We both went second semester. Um, so we were there in the spring. We hadn't been there in the fall. And I kind of meandered over to him and was like, man, this thing's cool. And he's like, yeah. Like crazy, this thing, like something this big can fly, right? <laughs> he looks at me like I'm crazy, like what are you talking about? I was like, ah, oh, I was just reading. Like, this is the largest commercial space vehicle in the world. He's like, what are you talking about? You're an idiot. Uh, and, and at this point, I couldn't be like, yeah, you're right, because that would have just been giving up. So I took it a, a step further. I was like, no, 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 seriously, look at it. The top little sphere up there, that's a restaurant. And you go up, and after you sit down, it takes off, and you orbit the Earth while you eat dinner. It's so expensive, but it's like the coolest thing ever. He's like, tell her, that's, I don't know where you're reading this, but it's not true. I was like, no, it is true. In fact, the fall semester final banquet was in it. And all the students in our program did it. And he was like, at, at that point, he was like, okay, this, like, how am I just hearing about this? 
And one of the students who had been there in the fall overheard, and he was like, yeah, we did that. <laughs> and it was so cool. We got up, we're eating prime rib, we're standing by the windows, taking pictures with the earth in the background. It was so awesome. And then we came down, and we just landed right here in the middle of the city, as one does. And, and Brian started to waver. He started to actually think, maybe this thing is possible. This 1,500-foot this concrete structure flies into outer space. And he said, okay, so you're telling me if I go over to Gigi, who's the program director over there, so she's the person in charge. She's, she's the authority figure. She's leading our tour. And he says, if I go over and ask Gigi, if that really happened, will she say yes? And we're like, yeah, totally, right? She, she'll, she'll definitely say yes. And so he goes over, and, and we're like, okay, watch. He's going to make a fool of himself. And he kind of feels the same way, so he kind of sheepishly asks, uh, Gigi, I've got a question. Did, did you guys eat dinner in space in the Pearl Tower last semester? And she's just confused. And she looks at him, and then she sees all of us behind him going, yeah. And she goes, yeah. <laughs> and in that moment, Brian understood. He experienced transformation. <laughs> because this face got these big eyes and this huge grin. He got so excited. He's like, I want to do it. Can we do it again this semester? And that enthusiasm that overtook him in that moment just pushed us over the edge, and we all lost it, and he realized he'd been had, and um, he's, still, he's still a close friend of mine, um, and he gave me permission to share that here, um, but he still gets mocked for it pretty, pretty significantly, and whenever I bring it up or anything like that, he insists, the only reason that I believed you was because of Gigi, right? The only reason, the only thing that actually pushed me over the edge was that this person who would never lie to me, who is an authority, who knows things, she said it was true. And that's exactly what happened with Thomas. He would only believe under very particular circumstances that Jesus had risen from the grave. We're going to get back into that story, and it's a story about two different nights. The first night, we've got, we've got Jesus and the disciples minus Thomas. Thomas is somewhere else. The second night, we've got everybody. And so I'm going to read the story the first night, and it's found in John chapter 20. It's probably um, up there, maybe back a couple slides. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So this, this scene opens in a really dark time. Right? This scene opens with, with a frustrating, kind of hopeless time because these people have gathered together to, to just be together after losing like the most important person in the world. These, these are participants in this new movement that was happening that was going to change the world and was, was going to liberate the Israelites from the Roman occupation and was going places. And these were the very first participants in that. And they'd bonded and this thing was just getting off the ground and the rug was pulled out from under it. 
So they're reeling now, right? They're hiding behind closed, locked doors because as part of that movement, they're criminals. And they're casting about and just coming up empty of something to hope in. Because, like, think about this. This is their main crew. These are the guys who have been the core for three years They're the ones who left everything behind, left everyone behind, and dedicated themselves to this cause for three years, and they've been left hanging, right? What's happening in that room? What what would it be like? What do you talk about when your leader, your mentor, your friend has just been yanked away from your community? I imagine they felt like their life had just gotten pretty chaotic. They, they didn't have anywhere to go. They didn't have anyone to support them. They didn't have anything to guide them, uh, except for these, these apparently unfounded fantasies of a person who is now dead. And, and who knows what exactly that looked like. Maybe they were sitting around raising a glass and reminiscing about the past several years. Maybe they were just sitting in awkward silence waiting for someone to say something. Maybe they were weeping and throwing things. Maybe they were yelling at each other. We don't know what it looks like, but what we do know is that that, that emotional descent that they were on wasn't going to last. Right? We as the readers know how this thing ends, and we know that it was about to turn around because in that time where, there's, where they're in that room, they're, they're mourning what has happened, and Jesus comes back. In, in a room with 10 guys who, who are hopeless, chaotic, casting about, there's an 11th voice. And it says, shalom. It says, peace be with you. And Jesus is there, and he's back, and he shows them his hands, and he shows them his scars. And it says, the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Every once in a while, you'll stumble across something in Scripture that just feels like such an understatement. You know, Matthew does it as well. He, he says, after 40 days and 40 nights of fasting, Jesus was hungry. And it was like, yeah, right? Yeah, yes, these disciples are glad. They're exuberant. They're, they're joyful because everything that had been taken from them has now been restored because because they have just bottomed out of this emotional co- roller coaster. And now they're standing in front of proof that, that everything that they've given their lives up for is, is worth it. It's true. This is... This is the confirmation and the culmination of everything that they've been through together. It's amazing. <clears throat> but, right, there's, there's that one guy. Somebody missed out. Somebody remained at that low spot. Somebody remained in that chaotic, hopeless place. <clears throat> I'm going to keep reading um, in John. It says, now Thomas... One of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Unless I get positive, undeniable proof, I will never believe. So Thomas had been... Out. You know, he, he dipped out on that first night. We don't know exactly what he was doing. Maybe he was on a, a grocery run. Uh, maybe he was taking care of something else. We don't know where he was, but we do know that the room he returned to was totally different than the room he walked out of, right? He left sad faces, downcast eyes, tears, and came back 
to a party, to, to, to joy, to exclamations, to tears probably, to people who probably can't even get the words out right, right? Like Jesus was here, hey, he was talking to us, he had the scars and he was, he was here, man, you missed it. What's that got to be like? What's that got to feel like? Like Brian, he was, he was immediately confronted with an impossible claim by his friends. They were telling him something that, that couldn't be true. And like Brian, he refused to believe. We refer to Thomas as doubting Thomas, right? Even if, even if you don't know the Bible, right? That's a pretty common thing. Uh, in culture, a, a doubting Thomas. I think that's kind of a, a missed name, though, for him, because doubt implies uncertainty of some sort, right? Like, oh, maybe, but I doubt it. That's, that's not Thomas. Okay, T Thomas doesn't doubt. Thomas disbelieves. He is certain. Thomas is a very certain kind of person. Um, he, he is a 100% all-or-nothing kind of guy. The things that we, we know about Thomas... Um, suggests that he is, is pretty ride or die, pretty extreme, all in or all out. Several chapters earlier in John 11, Jesus is going to a region that's dangerous for him. There's been attempts on his life there, and the disciples are like, whoa, Jesus, don't do that, you're going to die. And Thomas is like, let's go with him so we can die too. That's the kind of guy Thomas was. He was all in. But then he saw Jesus die. And now his friends are saying that he's back and he, he's clinging to this disbelief and asking, he's saying, if I have the exact same experience you had, I could believe, right? He's not asking for anything crazy. I think he's being super reasonable here, right? You guys all saw his scars and you saw his side. If I get that too, maybe I can believe. So I think Thomas gets a little bit of a bad rap, but I picture a real tense eight days in there. Right, with the disciples saying, no, Thomas, like seriously, I don't know how we can explain it to you in any way that we haven't, but like Jesus is back. He was there, he was talking to us, we saw everything, and he's coming back. And Thomas, I don't believe you, right? I don't believe you for eight long days. And eight days later, the scripture continues, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Shalom. Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. There's, there's the shift. He was a little late to the game, but there's the shift we were waiting for, right? I'll give one thing to Thomas. He, he's honest. He's straight up. What you see is what you get with him. Because he could have kind of gone with the flow. He, he, could have, he could have hung up his disbelief and pretended to believe just to shut his friends up who were saying that Jesus was alive. He could have fronted like everything's okay because all my friends are happy now and, and I'm not, but I guess I'll just go with it. But he didn't. And when Jesus came to him in the middle of that, in the middle of him acknowledging his disbelief, when Jesus came to him, imagine the, the relief. Right? You don't want to get your, your hopes up to potentially get hurt again like that. Imagine the weight that came off of his shoulders in that moment. Imagine the joy that flooded through him that led 
to the exclamation, my Lord and my God. There's so much more here that we're just blowing through. We could do a whole series on Thomas um, and on these scenes in particular. Um, But the main thing tonight that I want to point out is that Thomas is the kind of guy who anchors himself, who anchors in something. Before Jesus was crucified, he anchored himself. He bound himself to these expectations he had of Jesus, right? And expectations of what was going to happen with Jesus. This movement is happening. This new kingdom has begun. They're going places. He's part of Jesus' entourage. This is going really well. High expectations for the future, and those expectations failed. And then after Jesus was crucified, he swung the other direction. He needed something to hold on to, and so he committed to that disbelief. And he disbelieved just as hard as he had believed before. But then he has this moment with Jesus, and he, he comes face to face with the anchor that's been there the whole time, the anchor that he can't be separated from, that, that the circumstances in his life, the chaos, the, the, the separation, the, the, the rending and topsy-turvy things that have been happening over the past couple days can't separate, don't have the authority to pull him off of this anchor. I, yesterday, actually, walked by uh, Taylor's office um, up there and, and noticed that he had put something new on his door. And I paused to look at it because um, he, he's a pretty thoughtful guy and always has good, good stuff to say. And, and um, I thought it would probably be helpful. And it totally was because it was, it was a piece of paper that said Shalom on it. And underneath there was, there was a blurb that said something new about the word that I didn't know. Shalom is typically translated peace. And that's as far as I had really um, thought to understand it. But it turns out that, that the constituents, the, the building blocks of the word shalom, say to destroy the authority that binds to chaos. To destroy the authority binds to chaos. So when Jesus showed up in that room full of 10 guys who were all mourning him and hopeless and, and have nowhere to turn, He says so much more than just chill out, right? He says so much more than just be calm. He's proclaiming the authority to destroy the things that bind them to the chaos. Not not destroying the chaos, but destroying the things that bind to chaos. He says the same thing to Thomas, that nothing can separate them from him. And Thomas absolutely nails the response. My Lord and my God, this kingdom of chaos, the old kingdom, has no more claim on him, right? Has no more power over him. He declares Jesus as his authority. And the fact is, we today live in a world with imperfect people. There's always going to be things we don't understand. There's always going to be bad things that we understand all too well. But Jesus came to bring hope. And and while his salvation didn't manifest in the defeat of the Romans and the liberation of the Israelites like his disciples had originally thought, it brought goodness and it brought blessing as they rested in his 
love regardless of the chaos that swirled around them for the rest of their lives. Thomas proclaims, my Lord and my God. He places his faith and his trust in Jesus. He acknowledges that the darkness of the world has not overcome the power and the light of Jesus. And today, 2,000 years later, in a totally different time, totally different place, totally different culture, we're invited to do the same thing. Nowadays, um, one of the primary ways that we make that declaration is through baptism. When someone is baptizing, they're proclaiming, my Lord and my God. And they're publicly stating that their anchor is Christ. And that they will cling to Christ regardless of the chaotic circumstances they may find themselves in. And when the rug is pulled out from under them, their community is called to step up and to love them and to serve them and to demonstrate the power of Jesus in their life. If that's something that you've been thinking about, if that's something that um, you haven't been thinking about but might uh, want more information about, I would love to sit down and have a conversation about baptism and what it is and what it means. We've got, we've got lots of great resources and people who would love to talk to you about that as well. In a couple weeks, we're going to be um, doing it. We're going to be providing a space. We'll have a tank and water and a space to, if you want to make the same declaration that Thomas did, to be able to do that here in front of a community of your people here at the well. I think there's something powerful about confessing the lordship of Jesus Christ over your life in a space like this, in front of your peers, in front of people who will support you and love you through the journey. So like I said, if you want to know more about that, I'm serious about coming to find me or shooting me an email or any of our ministers or team members or the prayer team, anybody, we'd love to have that conversation with you. But to wrap up, Jesus came to bring shalom. He never promised that this life would be full of peaceful, harmonious circumstances, but he came to break the authority which binds us to chaos. He came to bring Hope that regardless of our brokenness or the brokenness around us, we aren't subject to that chaos. We don't have to be mired in it. We don't have to be bound to it. Life won't go as we expect. And we've all been through hurt and will be through hurt again in the future. But my challenge for you this week is to, in those moments, in those really hard times, to recognize and to think about the fact that those aren't what bind you and to anchor yourself in the love of Jesus. 